2: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast. My name is Glenn Hines, and I'm based in Derry in Northern Ireland. And as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Sebastian Kaplan in North Carolina. Hi, Seb. Hello, Glenn. How are you? How's things? Yeah, good, good, good. Really excited today about talking with our guest and exploring this thing called experiential motivational interviewing. But before we do that and introduce our guest, Matt. Maybe you could remind the guests of how they can contact us on social media. Sure. So we have a Facebook page, which is Talking to
1: Change. On Twitter, you can find us at Change Talking. On Instagram, it is Talking to Change Podcast. And for questions and comments and ideas for future episodes, you can email us directly at podcast at com. And of course, any rates
2: and reviews are appreciated as well. Yeah. And I suppose just acknowledging the rates and reviews, it's when we went behind the scenes and looked at our downloads, the last time we had 112,000 downloads. So we're most grateful to everybody who's taken the time to listen to one or more of these episodes. And if you have enough, whatever platform you're listening to is on, if there's an option to rate or offer a review, we'd be really keen to hear from you. And I suppose one of the that idea of acknowledgement. It's important for us too to begin by acknowledging the support that we have been receiving recently from the Northwest ATTC and through Brian Hartzler and his team. And more recently, in some of the editing of the, the podcast has been done by our good friend Tessa Hall. So a shout out to Tessa and the work that she's doing. And. With these changing times, part of what we also want to do is just let people know that if you are interested in training or learning more about motivation, both myself and Seb offer trainings. And if you're interested in our online workshops, you can just drop us a line. Again, you can use the podcast at glennhines.com and we'll be in touch with you. So on with the show. Today, we're joined from somewhere in the States. He's going to be a us by Matt McKenzie. Hi, Matt. How are you doing?
0: Hi, Glenn. Hi, Seb.
2: Hey, Matt. So we always start off with an invitation to our guests to introduce themselves and who they are and their journey into motivational interviewing. So perhaps you could start that for us. My
0: name is Matt McKenzie, and I am a licensed professional counselor in Alabama, United States. And my journey to motivational interviewing began in my graduate coursework at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. <laughs> I had a practicum internship professor that was a member of the Motivation Review and Network of Trainers, Dr. Stephen Hebbard. And in my internship, I was really struggling to connect with patients. I was teaching them a cognitive therapy model on a, on a marker board in, in a very traditional sense. And I would turn around and patients would be sleeping or disengaged. And I was struggling to have compassion and wondering what I was doing wrong. And I consulted with him in that class and motivation interviewing became the style and the the techniques that I started to try on. And I started to notice that my adult population and my adolescent population were really connecting because I was inviting them into the conversations. I was reflecting the meaning of their experience and not trying so much to think that I could teach them how to be, but wondering more about who they already were. Since that time, I've been using MI effectively in mental health treatment for the last seven years, and I'm a member of the, of the same organization, MENT, and I've been a member for the last two years, and it's excited me to now see how to combine the, the intent and the techniques of motivational interviewing with experiential models.
1: You know, we've been doing this for a couple of years now and hearing people's stories and their kind of first steps into MI. It just continues to be interesting, regardless of the country or the region of the US, you, you being in the Deep South, I think our first Alabama native on the podcast, I'm sure. But this this experience of those early moments in trying to help, genuinely trying to help, right? and And doing what you thought was what you were supposed to do. And it seems like or it sounded like from your description, being more instructive, perhaps, and telling people how to be and then, after hearing about MI and getting some mentorship and guidance there, it, it shifted from telling them how to be to finding out who are these people in front of you and what are they there for, and what are they all about as a, as a way to, to begin the work
0: Exactly when I was coming into you know I had all the ambitions to help, and I was working with mandated patients and adjudicated patients. And in the ways that I was trying to help, I think I was seeing the adverse outcomes. I was seeing that I was really outfitting all the forces of maybe oppression or areas where they weren't successful before, whether that be in a traditional classroom or or somebody telling them in a courtroom how to be and what to do and what the consequences would be if they continued to think and behave this way. And it was not effective and I didn't feel good about it at the end of the night, you know. So I, started, so I had a compassion fatigue for myself and for them. And I remember it being a key moment when I came into the counseling room with the same patients and just asking them, like, what do you want to talk about today? You know, where where do you want to go? If I could be a part of your journey, what what would my role look like to you? And just those little bitty, you know, those little early moments of like seeing the engagement. And I also saw this with a site supervisor by the name of Joan Leary. And uh, I saw her practice of motivational in- interviewing and I felt very like I was missing something. I saw her get to with my patients but, and, and outcomes much more rapid engagement than I had ever had before, and so I was like, "I was like, teach me your ways," you know. So and that and it's made it more enjoyable. And now I feel like when we learn and, and we're educating others on motivational interviewing, we're we're in many ways making the work more enjoyable. I don't have an agenda. I'm not trying to drive an outcome to, you know, think this way or notice these consequences. I'm just being with you and and you are the outcome, using the person as a catalyst to change.
2: And throughout that, it's your sensitivity to yourself is very obvious that you're, you were aware that your efforts to be helpful were resulting in something that was unfulfilling for you. And then this light lit up that you saw another way and your desire to be helpful was just invigorated and, I suppose your humility to be able to say, "Look, show me what you're doing," because whatever it is, it's working, and I want to be able to do that too. And even just that introduction of small changes in your practice began to see quite significant responses from your your service users.
0: Yeah, we saw. I, we definitely saw in retention, staying in the you know engagement and retention outcomes were far more improved, and I, and I noticed it as. As I saw these outcomes, I saw these markers of success, it challenged me to look more inward at my own attitude and delivery of skill and with the techniques. And as I started to have more acceptance of where I was and evoking my own skills, it was like we were challenging each other. And that's, that's really what I started to appreciate when I started to learn more about, you know, within MINT about, you know, the spirit, you know, the spirit of motivational interviewing it took me back to of, of, of what I love so much of uh, Carl Rogers.
1: Right. The links to Rogers and the importance of the spirit and other really, you know, understandably common thread throughout so much of so many of our guests and so many of their experiences, regardless of the, of the setting. So you, you've talked to us a bit about your early days in MI and, and how the sort of transformation that it led in you and, and subsequently in, in, in the work that you were doing and the help, to your clients. Tell us a bit about this experiential piece and, you know, inform our our audience a bit about what that is and what it is that you do and maybe your early days in that, and then how that kind of merges into the MI piece.
0: My first experience with experiential practices, I actually came on a study abroad trip with the university, University of Alabama, Birmingham. It was affiliated with Holy Cross with Dr. Ted Remley and Dr. Lawrence Tyson, and so we were in Italy and there was a presentation um, uh, on counseling approaches abroad and almost every counseling approach had a a component of making us active with one another. And I learned a lot about being more of of a member in those activities, about how maybe I was overly competitive or I wanted to be perfect or if I was a leader, or a follower and I started to notice that the style lowered a, any cognitive resistance or any levels of disengagement within the group because we were all playing and we were you know, playing by choice, we were challenging by choice. And so I became very excited with that when I came back to the States, working with adolescents, getting them more involved with one another. So trying things like sociometric testing, we would break the group down into dyads. and took focus off of me as having to talk to the whole room or uh, using adventure-based methods. And so when I began to become employed as an addictions counselor at Bradford Health Services in Alabama, we were launching the first emerging adult program in Alabama for age 18 to 29. And we knew that this group couldn't, could not just sit around all day and be talked to because this, is when, this was not a... Setting. That setting was a setting that they traditionally were not thriving in, especially being on withdrawals of chemical dependence. And so we would take them to ropes courses or have indoor activities for them. And the level of connection and interest and buy in that they were having was lowering the burnout that we were having. And so I became very excited to see how experiential was setting the scene for all the motivational interviewing conversation because we had created more of a rapid engagement. We had created focus and we had created it in a way where they felt safe because they were choosing to participate. And that was a very key element. And so I began to get certified in experiential methods such as adventure-based. And then I joined Mark Pimsler in Atlanta, the co-author of our book, And became supervised by him to achieve certification on how to use props, how to use sociometric testing within groups. And I actually saw this as well, So when I was at the Mint Forum. And there was, you know, there was was many activities where they were teaching in my spirit with spaghetti noodles and ropes. And we actually broke down the room from 120 to 4 and then back up to 8 to 16 to 32, and it just really took out what I think is the anxiety of it all. The awkwardness or the what's going to happen when you're trying to think ahead and you're just more in the moment. So that's really the, I feel like the journey I've had with experiential is just seeing how the rapid engagement factor happens.
2: It seems like there's something significant about the use of activities and its relationship to being in the moment for the individual. And as a consequence of that, their sense of being more engaged with their own experience in the company of other people. And as a consequence of that, then it struck me there's I imagine there were times where you were working with mandated clients, mandated patients, who then were choosing to do these activities. And it's almost like that paradox of, I don't want to be here, but I want to do this. And by creating that environment, then you have the opportunity as the practitioner to step into that space alongside of them with that, I suppose, conscious understanding of, that you are here to offer some form of intervention. And, and for you, that now includes the integration of motivational interviewing into the conversational style that you're having with these people.
0: Yeah, and I, I, remember, I remember with adolescents particularly, we would do adventure-based activities with the use of like carpet tiles and we put them down and we create like a a bridge across a field as many you know names of that activity. But if they stepped off that they lost contact with their support, they had to start over. And so the group sort of challenges the group and it would just it just made it to where I could ask open in the question I could practice opening the questions that were coming up for me as they were having insights that were coming up for them and I could reflect and we could look at the the prop with a projective identification, which I later learned in trainings with MI and both experiential, we were becoming more collaborative together. I wasn't telling them not to step off. I was asking them, you know, what's it like to step off and start over? <laughs> How's that comparing to the work you're doing, you know, with the court system? And at times they, you know, you would I would see these adolescents smile and laugh and it wasn't to block a defensiveness it was that they felt safe to laugh with me you know and we even point this out in our book that you don't you you normally don't laugh with your enemies you laugh with those that you feel safe with so just having that activity you know where maybe a patient is smiling and is saying I don't know what I don't know what this is I don't know what to do with this this is this is different we've we, an outcome I'm seeing as a, as a helper is that we're lowering the, the feelings that you can't be transparent. We're making it to where you can, you can actually tell me how you feel about this, and I can reflect that you're honest and you feel safe to communicate that to me.
1: So I actually have two Question. So I, normally we're going back and forth, Glenn and I, but I think I have a question and then I'd like to follow up on it. And first of all, I just wanted to acknowledge a friend and colleague, Richard Rushman in Chicago, who I'm, looks sounds like you know, Matt, someone I've known for many, many years. And the reason I'm bringing him up is he was my introduction to experiential activities and the sort of blending of MI and experiential work an adventure-based ed- education. And one of the things that Richard used to say, which I've heard you talk about briefly already, is that, well, I'll back up a bit. Oftentimes we think of MI as a precursor to something else. And actually there's some really solid research evidence that's growing about, you know, if you use, if you think of MI as, as the intervention before another intervention. So having an MI session as someone is entering into a rehab program, for instance, or blending motivational interviewing with cognitive behavioral therapy, where there's, there may be an exposure element that someone might be quite ambivalent about embarking on, that I paired with another intervention is, is one of the common ways we see MI in practice. And Richard was the first person, you're saying it the same way, Matt, is actually in some instances or maybe in some situations or contexts or groups – the use of an experiential approach can is is helpful as a precursor to MI, which is really quite interesting. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more. And, and actually, my, so my and my second question, and maybe you could blend the two. You mentioned this exercise with the teens with carpet tiles. And that'd be something I think people would be interested in hearing maybe a little bit more about if you could provide more detail about what that. Uh, exercise is and and how you use it in practice.
0: Yeah. And the first question I, and I've had conversations with this about Richard because I view him as, as a pioneer, as a, as a, as a definite expert on, on this and what he's done. And I learned of him through Elizabeth Graves. Um, she was my mentor in the mint program. I was the mentee. I was calling her every week. We were talking about how to train him. I, and I said to her, you know, well, I really am enjoying seeing something. I didn't know what I was seeing. I was just knowing I didn't know the. <laughs> I didn't know all the mechanics of it and the nuts and bolts of it all. But I knew that it was working. <laughs> you know, so I was I, I shared with Elizabeth that I was practicing learning affirmations by playing Jenga. And as they pulled them out, they had to give each other, everybody to give affirmations or open ended questions or reflections. And we were teaching, am I this way? And she just looked like a Christmas tree and said, you've got to talk to Richard Rushman. And so that's where I've learned of Richard Rushman's ideas that you can actually put the experiential, instead of having, MI I with, am I with, am I with, in our search histories, we can say experiential maybe with, MI? And even the title of our book is not Motivational Interviewing with Experiential. We decided to make it intentional that it's Experiential Motivational Interviewing. Because often when we, in very timely and limited sessions, and in my anecdotal experience, the groups that we have are very open door. They're not, they're not closed groups. You know, we're having patients are discharging or graduating as patients are returning or coming for the first time. And so no one really knows anybody, you know, and therapists often don't have the same group every day. They often are coming into a group maybe two times a week or three times a week. And so there's no instant rapid connection. And so this was a way that Richard and I have talked about that gives that that engagement at a much quicker level because we don't have a lot of time. We're not normally having an hour long session. We're having, you know, a 30 minute session, And even then I've seen it as a corporate trainer that therapists are talking about. Even the 30 minute session seems like a long time because there's a real struggle with connection. I I don't know if that's because of social devices and stuff like that. Like we're becoming more disconnected and it's hard to have a, have a conversation. So experiential seems to be the, the vehicle that can really drive and put into gear what we want to do with motivational interviewing,
1: perhaps. Yeah, great. And that's, again, very similar to what Richard has said. And um, it's just an interesting thought that, because we often think of MI as, well, it's, it's how we engage. It's all about empathy and understanding and partnership. But, you know, we might be more ready than a client is to engage in that. And certainly if we're in a group context, I mean, you know, the need for the group members to engage with each other would be important. And that's where experiential comes in. And so you talked about this exercise with carpet tiles and people, the participants stepping on and off and, and tell us a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. So like the many, I know many kids know, like the game, the floor is lava. And so if you, if you touch the lava, you know, if we say the floor is lava, you have to get off the floor. And so we, we just, we set a distance with two lines and they're both safe zones. Everything in between that is lava, you know, with with quotations. And um, we give each participant a piece of a carpet tile. This could also be a a block of wood or whatever, whatever object you want. I think when I was in grad school, I used rubber placemats, you know, because I just didn't have a lot of resources. Each person gets a a, a prop and they have, they describe what that prop means to them. If that prop was their resource or their strength. And then the group has to work together to get not only all the members across the the pit of lava, but they also have to not lose their supports. And there's a lot of fun spins on that, that if they did lose their supports, they now have to go back. And that's a conversation about change being constant. And, you, and change becomes harder if we forget what got us there in the first place. If, uh, if there's ever a, a body part of a hand or a foot that comes off of the, the prop, then they lose the prop to the point where the group can storm and decide to start over and with all their props back in their hand, or they can start dealing with their own consequences. But it's ultimately up to them and how they want to solve it. You know, you don't, it's, it's not a trap. It's just here's the rules and let's see how you play. And then as they're, they're um, engaging with one another, you get to see their natural characteristics of who they are. So we're evoking who they already are. So we're seeing the skills, MI-related skills, showing up in the activities. So there's reflections. You know, I noticed that you've taken on the leader role. Where else in your life, you know, should that show up? You know, so there's a lot of evocation I and mean, feedback, which is, you know, as many of your guests have talked about before, is just so important in motivational interviewing.
2: So in many ways, it just strikes me that the, the activities themselves can act as a, almost like a, a metaphor for life circumstances. And that by playing these games or setting up these challenges, as you say, that the the nature of the individual presents itself naturally. And where the skillfulness comes in from the practitioner's perspective is to be able to notice and pay attention to that and how, and how that then is offered back using reflections and affirmations. But also it sounds like there's lots of opportunities for teaching moments, those psychoeducation moments where you're even just exploring that idea of, you know, change can be difficult and, you know, working in groups can be hard and sometimes people are pulling in different directions and just inviting people just to examine their experience left of centre and then relating back to their own lives and not just that evocation. So in what ways does that then relate to your own experiences in your own life where perhaps you have lost the support of friends or you've lost the support of family or, or you've been thrown out of school or whatever else. What are your choices as you have here? What are your choices? So I, I imagine that that can be, as you say, that just that that opportunity to create a really safe or a differently safe experience. Because I, I guess that there might be times where I'm trying to imagine myself coming along to, at some form of treatment, and the guy says, "Okay, we're going to start walk across this lava floor," and the nature of who I am, maybe no, I'm a bit tired, or I, you know, I, I'm, I'm afraid of being exposed and vulnerable. So there's a different, I suppose, different challenges compared to sitting face to face doing traditional therapy?
0: Yeah, and I think with traditional therapy, we often have a struggle when we do not feel like we know somebody well. We don't feel safe. The conditions aren't met for that kind of work that we really don't know how to say it in words. We can't express it into words. And maybe there is if we're we're working with people who have a feeling to be reacting, if if they've had trauma, if they've had people tell them that they're no good at something or they should do it this way, then maybe they're coming in with expectations that this, this person is going to tell me to do the same and they're trying to figure me out. And so it's a defense game plan for too long. And we don't have that much time to offer effective care. And so it really creates this experiential curative factor of element of surprise. You thought we were going to come in and talk about your deficits, but I want to play this for lava game with you and, I wanna see who you are. And then I think that maybe there's there's a we talk often about the acceptance, the the spirit components of MI, acceptance, collaboration, evocation. We we talk about this as as one way, I think sometimes as maybe the helper having acceptance, but maybe these activities are creating the patience to have acceptance of me and invite me in.
1: So the idea of the the spirit as a as a two way street, maybe. You know, how can yeah, I suppose if you think about it, I mean, a partnership isn't one way. It is, it is two people, theoretically, or, or maybe more, depending on the context of, of the kind of relationship that that would define. Yeah, so you're really searching for, maybe it, in, in the way you're describing it, I don't know, I suppose the purest form of partnership than, that we've come across in, in our discussions, you know, where it's, it's, it's not just us to them as the provider, even that word, right? Provide. Well, we are providing this service or we are helping like it's, it's much more of an active role, but you're, you really seem to be embodying a truly active bi-directional relationship there.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, and I'm, I'm recently married and I'm, and I think about the, you know, I don't have a lot of experience here, but, but the, the engagement process, it it takes time. You don't you don't just you know meet your partner and, and decide to line up your bills and all that right away. It takes time to develop the trust. And then I think about how much more rapidly the trust is built when you go through things together, active things. When they're both enjoyment, but they're also both a little challenging and things like that. And so when when working with individuals, that's In that way, that's, that's where I've also seen that process when, when guys or, or females or, you know, any population, young and old, when they're coming together and they're having to look and see that I identify with one other person in this group, we're creating a supportive factor, maybe of retention to do deeper work. So, you know, we're setting the scene for much deeper work and conversations about change. So there's a real tent, you know, we're not, we're not playing activities aimlessly and wasting time. There is intention just last weekend my and I have a private practice on Saturdays met six new members of a group that had 12 and we took a uh, they're all coming in with their books you know thinking that we're gonna you know we're gonna open up a book write down some skills and be on with it and I come in with a with boxes of markers and dump them in the floor grab a sheet of paper don't you draw a house you know, and this is something we bring into group like this. This is called life's blueprint. So they brought, they draw a house that has a roof, that has walls, has windows, has doors, has a as a lawn, has lights, has a chimney, and that this playful side is coming out. You know, it's inner child. This this time where you weren't as maybe defensive or overthinking it, but that you were just being a natural self, and you were you know, curious about what your neighbor was drawing or you were, you know, trying to find the right color that fits you, your subconscious state or something you knew from a prior time. Then we go to the evocation, we flip it over and we say, well, you know, that chimney that you drew, what, what helps you blow off steam? Those windows you drew, who sees you? What, how would you let someone see you? What would you let them know about you, that door you drew? Who, who do you need to keep out? You know, that lawn that you drew, what do you want your legacy to be? You know, and what, what lights you up? You know, so what holds you up? And, you know, they get to, then we use dyads. And we break this group down from 12 to 2. And we ask them to share with each other. And then we bring them back to 12. And we, we take those drawings and we make a neighborhood. And as someone is sharing, they're connecting power lines from their house to the other person's house. Now, within the group, we know that they'll take all their paper with them, but they'll remember the marks that were on the group, on their page. You know, and I'm just constantly keeping a pulse on the moment and the experience and asking them and reflecting to them, you, know, you connect with that person it's on spirituality. You connect with that person on, on being a parent. Your, your child brightens you up you're now thinking about the legacy you want to live, you know, so, or and asking them, and dialing into the temperature of the room. So that could not happen if I was just Q and A for one hour with six people I've never met before, not at that rapid rate.
2: I, I'm, I'm just struck by again, that whole thing that you're, you're describing as the creating of the, the identification with each other and the, the normalization that that can create for people. And that, that then can, Break, bring the group cohesion forward much quicker. And I'm also struck by that, your use of the evocation. What does this chimney mean to you? How do you blow off steam? And I guess it just recognizing that the individual themselves doesn't necessarily have to answer this out loud to have any benefit. The fact that you're just inviting them to use the metaphor of the chimney as a way of thinking about that part of their life, who sees you and it helps them understand that from that internal reference and whether they choose to share it or not, it has given them an opportunity for them to think about it for themselves, about themselves. And I guess that that, that in itself is very powerful. And you mentioned your book, and just the experiential motivational interview and action-oriented way of being is the name of the book. And one of the things that in reading it, a beautiful line that struck me was, healing itself is a creative act. And it sounds like creativity is so much of what you're doing in your work, Matt, and I'm just wondering, can you expand on that—that that, that notion of healing as a creative act?
0: Yeah. So I think when we are when we're faced with challenges, we to to experience healing, we have to find out how to creatively tap into all the things that will help us get out of this that we didn't think that we we had in us. We didn't. Something taught us that we didn't. We don't. We no longer possess a strength, or that we see ourselves as flawed. So having to creatively tap into that is something I know I even do in my personal work. I, you know, I had a childhood stroke as a kid. I've ran marathons. I currently train jujitsu with George Webby at Lionheart Academy. And there's always a creative way to find what's the like one or two things that you can do to give yourself in the best position. And so in the, in the activity portion I think the activities give us the way of being and motivation of being gives us the way of communicating the, how they're being. And we get to merge those together and, and with a creative force. Instead of directing the play, we're creating. We're letting them create the play. And so like with like an activity to make connections such as step in, step out, we're in a circle because we don't want to create division with lines, having people sit in rows. So we're always in a circle for the unity. And we ask them to step in if they connect with a theme. So step in if you feel welcome to the group. Step out. And we do several of these in the sequencing effect, which is very creative, right? So we see sequencing and television shows, right? So you get a little bit of heavy stuff, and then you get some light stuff, and then you get some heavy stuff. Then the show's over, and you get a preview. So it's always sequencing our mind, right, so that we don't have cognitive overload or emotion, you know, we can regulate the emotion. And so we we turn that over then to the patients and ask them, well, you know, you you, you bring something to this now and ask people to step in if they connect. And so we, we're creating the, we use the acceptance and we use the collaboration that I'm not gonna tell you what to do this whole group. I don't know what the outcome will be. I think it's very creative and I don't know what the outcome will be, <laughs> you know, because then I have to be creative if it goes, if, if the water travels a different path, I have to be very creative with that in my reflections, in my questions. And I think that these, these creative outlets teach people how to be spontaneous and adaptable. So like if when their supports are gone, like with the carpet activity, how do I, what do I create here to adapt and to move forward? And that, that's really, I think that really lines up with the Ford way of thinking, of honoring the patients, which is evocation. So I, I really think that that really lines up with all of what MI is doing. I think Experiential do it. I think they have overlap, not just for, as a clinician to patients, but I think when we're training and teaching motivational interviewing with activities, we challenge the helper to be more creative in their delivery of skills, they're metaphoric reflections. So I think that all of, we just, we grow, we keep evolving. We don't look at MI as, as it's, as it's done. as the best it'll ever be. We look at how to create it and evolve it and to fit all these different fields.
1: Yeah. Just the word creative and just thinking about how we'd normally think of it is, you know, you have a, a block of clay or a blank canvas and it there's something that happens when someone is creative with that and it turns it into something else still its elements are intact it's still clay it's just a different shape than it was originally or there's now color on this canvas it's still a canvas however and i suppose the idea of healing as a creative act you have the person that is transformed through the work that you're doing and in that sense, there's where the creativity comes in. Now it's creativity. The, the clay isn't shaping itself, of course, whereas in the work that you're doing, it's, it's two people together or multiple people in a group setting. But yeah, it offers an interesting and, and new way of thinking about healing. And it, it strikes me as something else in the book too that, that I came across I wanted to ask you about, which, was, which is also perhaps a bit of a creative take on a term that certainly mental health providers often use, but maybe anybody in the helping profession, which is the term resistance, which has a, an interesting history within the field of MI. Uh, you know, a lot of us are fond of the term rolling with resistance, which was something we used to say a lot and was part of the first two editions of the main text. And, but Mill and Rolnik have since deviated away from the concept of resistance because of some of the negative connotations that it fosters in our thinking about clients. And you actually had quite a, shall I say, I would say extreme take on the, on the idea of resistance So in, in your book. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about that.
0: So one of the ways I think that we, like you said, we've looked at resistance is if, if we're trying to support this person who's not seeing the consequences and the negative effects of certain behavior, then we think that they just don't want to get better and and that their pushback is just that they are resisting support. And so we have, been, you know, traditionally said that they don't want to get better. And Mark and I really, you know, come together and, and really think about this from what we've seen in activities. While writing the book, I was a corporate trainer for over a, half, a year and a half in different offices. So this was not just a small sample. I could see it regionally and I would, I would both teach the concepts and I would also be with patients. And we really started talking about the experiences that I was having there and he was having it as a practice to see resistance as a fear of, of knowing what you know, but not feeling safe enough to bring it up. So the fear of knowing I'm an alcoholic the fear of knowing I have a, a chemical dependency problem, or the fear that I know that I have this issue. But I fear that if I expose that thing, I have to deal with it and I have to deal with it with somebody I don't really know very well. And then it may drive this shame factor. And so we looked at resistance as a fear, whereas the discord is the relational component, as M.I. talks about. So you know, I've, I've been trying to think about for, for some time now, like going skydiving <laughs> as a, as a, you know, my next push. And I'm thinking about how discord would be if somebody was trying to urge me and, and pull me up in, into the plane and do that. But resistance is that, that, that uh, the, the thing about signing up and not trusting air because I trust the ground, you know, so that I'm, I'm having this internal visceral reaction and I'm feeling it in my body. I'm feeling this body temperature. I'm feeling this this queasiness in my stomach about it all. I know that I want to jump, but I haven't challenged it. So I'm having this ambivalence because of the resistance, the fear state. And so we, we really hypothesize that perhaps having these activities can lower the fear state.
2: Yeah. So just, so again, it's about changing the, envi- the, the expected environment in it itself can create a new environment where I've prepared myself to resist or prepared myself to defend myself against a therapist who's going to come at me and try and get me to admit that I'm one thing or another. And here he is having me play Jenga. And in that conversation, this is a new environment I'm not prepared for. And there's a, what's the word I'm thinking of? It's almost like the, the, the moment becomes malleable much more than the expected one. And then that, that, upper, that then creates the opportunity for you as the practitioner to use that malleability to introduce a supportive, compassionate understanding experience, which then softens the client's fears of you and increases the likelihood of them beginning to think, well, maybe I could explore this with this person in a way that won't shame me or frighten me. And interestingly, in, in the episode we've just recently released with Dr. Neto. Part of what he talked about was that the social hierarchy where we were because of the nature of who we are as animals, the, the back brain is is always on guard to threat to our sense of well-being and place in the in the hierarchy. And it sounds like what you're doing in this as well is creating a space where who you are is now being challenged by me because we're we're over here doing this. And while we're doing this, I'm being curious and interested in you. And again, in in the book you described using creating a new social dynamic in that relationship. And I can understand what you're describing is, is that, look, we recognize, by recognizing resistance as this, then inverted it's the, the responsibility we have, we have as practitioners to respond to that understanding by doing something different to create a new opportunity for the client. I'm just wondering what other ways are you, what other ways you see yourself doing that? To lower the resistance and increase the engagement.
0: I like to, with the experiential style and with the MI, knowing I have the MI seals in my pocket per se, I like to acknowledge the perceived threat and then work with it. You know, if I if I had you guys in an activity and I said, oh, you know, let's let's do this, and and Glenn, you're participating, but Seb says I don't want to. I'm going to look to Seb and say you hold your boundaries. I'm going to reflect it. You hold your, I'm going to validate it. You hold your boundaries. Then I'm going to ask Seb, maybe at some point in the sequence, where else could you hold those boundaries or what's it like with me to hold boundaries? What's it like to say your boundaries and know that I respect it. And so that's, I think that's something that we, that I've learned and grown in with this, with this approach, rather than saying, okay, now for the rest of the treatment, I'm going to dodge this individual subconsciously because I don't want to, I don't want to upset them. <laughs> and then I end up doing no effective work except reporting into my, you know, my supervisor and my treatment notes that they have resistance. But I've never, I've never taken an archeological dig on, you know, and trying to help the person unravel what created the resistance or what's going on with the individual.
2: So the resistance itself is purposeful at some level. And again, along that in the chapter, chapter four on creativity and spontaneity, what struck me was your encouragement for the, the reader who is the practitioner. It's almost like you're, you're encouraging us to recognize the importance of of our attunement to our own experience in that situation as a way of helping us to understand the client and what it is they may need from us. And the way you just described it there to recognize it when it says, I don't want to do this that you recognize his need to keep himself safe without you feeling threatened by that. And then to respond to that in a really supportive and compassionate way, while staying flexible to see the opportunity that may arise later in the conversation for you to support Seb, think about things from that perspective, or even to go, okay, I'm prepared to change my boundaries now and become a participant in a different way.
0: Yeah, and I and I think I've seen it both as a clinician and as a trainer of the concepts we're discussing. As much as I feel dialed in and and educated and versed on it, I have found myself going before a group and having resistance. Like I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know these people. That's, it's it's uh, the roster on the on the on the door says. You know, over a hundred people and like I'm having resistance. I'm having resistance. It's like I love this, but I don't know if I want to do this. You know, I'm so glad that am in I and experiential. Let us look inward in order to look outward. You know, knowing that like I'm having a hard time accepting myself. I'm having I'm not giving myself compassion. I'm not looking at my strengths that I possess. So being able to recognize that I too do this, right? So when I'm in a session, I'm not looking I'm trying not to look at the person and saying, well, you're a patient and you obviously have resistance and that's not okay. You need to get along with it. Instead of having this approach of, this is interesting. Like this is, this needs to be explored together. We need to explore this together because maybe your resistance could ultimately lead to your healing. Seeing that maybe you can push through and create a tolerance and, and, and create and adapt.
1: Yeah. I, I- I feel like I'm hearing a a few important lessons there. One is the idea of curiosity and how, if that is something that one of our listeners values, or if a provider values that when we make definitive statements about the other person, like they are resistant or my own personal non-favorite is they are manipulative it just kind of ends the exploration of what's happening for the other person it It's such a conclusion, and of course, since we're the providers, then we're the experts, right, so then we must know and it just further ends any discussion or conversation perhaps unless it's about how to validate my view on whether you're resistant or, or manipulative so you know just the idea that you would take somebody's quote unquote resistance to participate in an exercise and in a way, validate and even support it, encourage it even, and even go so far as to say, where else are you setting boundaries in your life? I mean, it's just a complete shift in how we would often respond. I guess another way I'm thinking about it too is we have these terms, at least in the healthcare field, of patient-centeredness, right? Obviously, it's origins and Carl Rogers, not surprising when he developed client-centered counseling, but you know, I feel like patient-centeredness, if you ask 100 providers if they're patient-centered, 100 of them are going to say yes, because who in their right mind is going to say, no, I'm actually not patient-centered. So, But I, I think if you were to ask them, what does that mean, or how do you do that, it's probably a bit harder to tease out, even for themselves, like, all right, what do I actually do that's patient-centered? And and some might have a misconception that it's, you know, the people that might or they might be uncomfortable with it might feel like you're just doing whatever the patient wants you to do, which is a misconception, right? But to take the idea of resistance and view it as what, you know, and, and, and sort of being curious about their fears and change, as opposed to them resisting me, really, because then, then it becomes about me or the treatment that they need, but they don't know that they need and all that. I mean, that seems like truly a patient-centered way of thinking and, and a, a way of thinking that would then lead to patient-centeredness as an action and could certainly guide conversation from there.
0: Yeah. And I, I, I really, to add to what you're saying, I, I love that that's where we've gone with mi with compassion you know acknowledging that compassion is not an emotion it's it's that choice to understand and look and filter through these characteristics and to find the one thing that you're doing the best with that you can at this time like the best you can do right now is to hold a boundary and show me that you can hold a boundary you know like that is the best you can do with that and then I take on the posture of I want to I help with that. I want to, I want to understand that, you know, and I've, I've even gone as far as in activities to think of it, you know, of asking maybe the individual, you know, what concerns you the most about if you open up, what concerns you the most if you don't open up, you know, what can, you know, how long, how tight is this wall? using the metaphors again you know the the projective identification because then i'm not really talking about you i'm talking about the wall you know how many bricks are in this wall is this wall made of steel you know what like really exploring the wall and i think and i've seen it happen to when i do that the individuals come down off the wall and they're like you know what i do want to take a brick out of the wall you know so what might you do to do that and i think it it takes us more from just Maybe, maybe we're getting from patient-centeredness into present-centeredness. Just being like really dialed into this moment. You know, perhaps as something we're seeing this when they're stuck. Maybe even having the group respond. I mean, we can test, you know, with the activities we can test. We can do activities as sociometric hands in the book. You know, we're, we're in the circle and we can say, You know, if you feel comfortable with this, placing a hand on the shoulder of the person or standing near the person, if if a hand is not okay, stand or place a hand on the shoulder of an individual that you would like to support more. And we see these constellations form around that individual. And and there's no words. It's just movement. So, no, I didn't have to have somebody talk at me is what the person can can convey. You know, no one's saying anything to me. I just got to see
2: it. And I can imagine how profound that must be for some people, that people that they may not know that well see their willingness to be available in whatever way they can to be of support to them in a way that's perhaps different for them in the in their other real world experiences that these people are going, even just by touch or close closeness of proximity. And the message that that communicates to them about who other people witness them to be and their willingness to take their own risks, to be supportive of them. And you, you mentioned Rogers and what strikes me is, is you know, when, when we listen to what Rogers says about empathy, is that he talks about the, the, the practitioners having enough security within themselves to be able to recognize when they step into a client or a patient's world and to remain aware of their own themselves while being in that world. And it sounds like that's an awful lot of what you're doing there for you to be able to be this creative in the moment, to be able to be responsive to what could be called resistance or difficulties or problems, and just to stay present with an open mind, an open heart and a kindness towards just, even the way you reframe what could be called difficulties in a way to just be curious, recognizing this this is how they've got this far
0: without me. Yes. Without me,
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. 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 And I, and I think that that's something you, you really, you know, you're really hitting on there Glenn is to have to meet the vulnerability with kindness and not judgment. If anything, like maybe that alone is, is going to help create some healing that, you know, I don't have an agenda to fix you today with this, with this wall but that you see that I'm not going to try to tear down your wall like a bulldozer. You know, that I'm just like, Oh, a nice wall. It's a, it's a very stable wall you have there. You know, and not with sarcasm, but with genuine, you know, this wall is strong just a reflection. And I think when I'm, when I'm teaching this with motivation interviewing, I have to make sure that I'm in, you know, really making an important discussion around the neutrality of the reflections. It cannot come as sarcasm. It cannot say like, "Boy, you really stepped in there." It's like, no, something told you it was okay to step in. I don't know. Will you tell me? You know.
1: Well, wonderful uh, ideas to to I think begin to wrap wrap up on. Uh, you know, we're conscious of our time here, but uh, you know, certainly, just again, just really wonderful examples of of creativity, creative thinking. And you know invitations. You know this whole idea of wall of the wall and and being curious about someone's wall, and as opposed to seeing it as as a barrier, which I guess walls are to some extent. But this would be an invitation to find out more about the person, which is which is really wonderful. But as we as we start to close, we often like to find out from our guests what is coming up next for them what's on the horizon what do you what are you thinking about as a endeavor whether it's professional or personal so what do you have in mind matt
0: i'm currently a doctoral student at the university of holy cross it's a fully online k-crep accredited program for, uh, for counseling education supervision and i'm taking on a qualitative study to understand these components that we're talking about to reduce compassion fatigue for the helper, my my interest is to see that if we are doing you know motivational reviewing and experiential modalities, that perhaps we're creating this this flexibility in the moment as a helper, this curiosity, and this may this could reduce this committee in the head that I'm not I'm not doing things well, and I have low self-efficacy or or that judgment of this person has resistance. So maybe we're lowering compassion fatigue and really separating compassion to fatigue from, from burnout and really looking at, you know, this is not really about the task of the day. having limited hours or the, the amount of people in a group, because I know I've seen in my own, you know, practice settings, these methods can work, whether you have 10 in a group or you have, I've had as, much as, you know, almost, I've had as much as 50 college kids in the Greek system in a group. And it's if I have a big enough prop, I can meet the group. If I know how to break down the group. And so that, to me, is driving self-efficacy upward, patient buy-in upward, and reducing burnout for both parties. And so that's, that's something that I'm going to try to be breaking down over the next two
2: years. Mm. And you mentioned that earlier on about that idea of the, the client – The absence of client engagement or per client engagement is somehow related to practitioner's own burnout or fatigue where they're going, what's the point? What's the bloody point? They're not moving. And it sounds like, again, it's about recognizing that that for me to become fatigued, I've somehow invested some of me looking for some sort of return in this process. I'm going to make you better to make me feel good. And it sounds like part of what we're exploring here is what if we didn't invest in ourselves, off ourselves to look for a return, which, and that's what you've been talking about the whole session, which is what if I simply practice being curious, witnessing who this person is, witnessing what could be traditionally caused, called difficult behavior as resourceful behavior from the client's perspective. And that, as you described at the very beginning, once you stop trying to fix people, <laughs> and started to be curious about who they were in that moment, your life improved, your experience of it, you started to enjoy what you're doing. And, and I'm wondering, what, if anything, have you been discovering early on in your research about, so if anybody was listening, is there any tips or guidances that you've discovered so far that may be a benefit to some people out there who you may experiencing some fatigue or frustration in their practice?
0: The current thing I'm learning is that compassion fatigue is high when there is a negative view of the patient and then there is a negative view also of yourself and the skill. So consider, you know, I, I know I went to, you know, seven years, you know, undergrad and graduate school, then you have so many licensure hours to get and then just to get the, just to get your foot in the door. And so it's a lot of, a lot of work. So maybe, maybe we're also getting to the edge, maybe of, Close compassion fatigue already. So I think maybe I think maybe we need to look at how are we educating, motivational interviewing, or even maybe adding in the thing that I love with experiential in the classroom of, of graduate programs, and also looking at how to provide consistent continued education, not just for the CEU units. You know, the, in these in most feels these continued education units, but really just, you know, giving more effort towards education, towards training, because if you feel like you spent all this time and money and energy and there's no outcome, you're gonna feel like you I should leave this job or I should go get a different type of career. And so I think we're having very courageous people that are voluntarily trying to help people and then they burn out because Maybe we didn't support them with, with something that can teach them how to look at themselves and also look at others.
1: Well, certainly some exciting or exciting learning journey for you going forward. And we certainly hope to hear more from you, Matt, as you explore not just experiential motivational interviewing, but this role that our practice has in perhaps reducing compassion fatigue. So, Matt, thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast. It's been uh, it's been a real pleasure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And, and perhaps perhaps one of the things that we also do as well is just to remind people or just to invite you, Matt, if people were to be interested, and I'm sure they are, there's going to be lots of people who will be intrigued by an awful lot of what you've said today. If you're happy enough for people who are listening to podcasts to contact you, would that be okay? And if it is, how do they go about doing that?
0: Yes, um, so – I have, we have a web page to do any kind of uh, follow up. It's Mackenzie Strategies and Mackenzie is M C K E N Z I E. There's off the curiosity of how to spell that word, that name. So, Mackenzie dot com and then the email will be McKinsey at Mackenzie dot com.
2: Have you a Twitter handle that people could follow?
0: Yes. Um, let's see, I always forget.
2: I think it's Matt Mackenzie Minty.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt McKinsey Minty. I have one for my jujitsu. I'm sorry, and I also have one for Mi. Yeah, it's Matt McKenzie Menti. Minty. Well,
2: we'll certainly include all of in, in the and in the in the blurb, blurb along with the that goes along with the, the podcast. And we've mentioned the book a few
1: times. How do people look that up if they're interested?
2: It's published through Kindle
0: Hunt Publishing. And if you go to their higher education section and type in experiential or motivational, it'll be the, it'll be the first hit.
1: Okay, great. We will include that in the episode notes as well. Any links to that? So experiential
2: and motivational again.
0: Yeah, either or I've I've tested it all out. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Fantastic. And again, just to remind people for staying in touch with ourselves, our Twitter handle is at teens talking, our Facebook is talking to change. Our Instagram is Talking to Change Podcast. Our email address is podcast at And again, if you're interested in training, just drop us a line and we can give you some information about that. But thanks very much, Matt. Really interesting conversation. We really appreciate you giving up your time today. And uh, we wish you every success with, with the doctorate and um, with the book. And uh, certainly would love to hear more about the research around the, the impact on. on on practitioners of in helping that would be really really good for us here. But just to say hello and to thank you, thanks, sir. Yep. See you, again. Take care, everybody. Thanks.
0: Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for one twenty nine each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for two forty nine a pound. All with your card and a digital coupon.